This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak on Performance Management in Government. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and leadership fellow at the IBM Center for the Business of Government. Each week, my goal is straightforward, to introduce you to key government executives and thought leaders who are tackling significant management challenges and seizing opportunities to lead. To complement these examples of leadership in action, I also highlight the practical, actionable research done by some of the most recognized and respected thought leaders in public management. Whether government leaders or thought leaders, our guests join us for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation. Over the past five years, I've had the pleasure of interviewing over 200 of these leaders. It is from this rich library that I call together their insights on managing performance in government. Performance management initiatives over the past two decades helped shift the conversation within and across U.S. government agencies from a focus on measuring program activities and outputs to a focus on achieving mission outcomes. These performance management initiatives started with developing a supply of information via new routines and then moved to the use of more sophisticated techniques. Together, these information gathering efforts have gradually contributed to a greater demand for performance information by key decision makers. The U.S. federal performance management movement is rooted in the passage of the Government Performance and Results Act of 1993. The Government Performance and Results Act of 93 shifted the focus of many programs in the government from focusing on spending money and doing activities to organizing around results to be achieved. And those results oftentimes reached across agency boundaries. But GPRA was only one milestone in a much broader trend toward the development and use of performance information. Performance information has long been collected and used to a varying degree in the United States since the early 1900s as part of reforms brought about by the progressive movement. Localities and several state governments began developing performance measurement systems more methodically in the 1970s. The federal government undertook some performance-related initiatives, such as the Defense Department's planning, programming, and budgeting system of the 1960s. But other agencies did not begin in earnest until the passage of GPRA. That law required federal departments and agencies to develop strategic plans, annual performance plans, performance measures, and annual performance reports. By 2010, a number of lessons had been learned in how to effectively develop, use, and govern a performance management system. Many of these lessons are documented in the reports done by the Government Accountability Office on the implementation of GPRA, but also from agencies' practical experience with the effectiveness and impact of various performance management routines. 
Changes based on these lessons were incorporated into the GPRA Modernization Act of 2010. The overarching implementation challenges highlighted by GAO and others point to two enduring realities faced by agency implementers which continue today. Too much focus on measuring outputs versus outcomes and lack of demand for performance information. In response to the adoption of GPRA, federal agencies began developing performance management routines to create a supply of performance information. This started with the development of agency strategic plans, annual operating plans, performance measures, data collection systems, and data reporting systems. So that law, the GIPRA Modernization Act, is really meant generally to promote good governance practices throughout the government, government efficiency, government effectiveness, and it's an updating of a previous law, the Government Performance and Results Act, that was enacted in 1993. And so these two laws together kind of are the foundation for modern, you know, current government practices in the area of how to manage effectively. And um, the laws generally outline requirements for setting goals, measuring progress toward achieving those goals for government agencies, and also reporting the results of that, reporting uh, the extent to which government agencies are achieving their goals. Each large agency has to produce a strategic plan, and that timeline is meant to sync up with the preparation of um, the annual budget, since the federal government's budget is also due um, at that time. Uh, so that's the idea. And then there are other requirements, that things that have to happen after that in terms of annual reports on the extent to which uh, goals that have been set out are being achieved. Effective strategic plans must tie to an agency's day-to-day operations in order to be meaningful. This requires the development of annual operating plans linked to resources, meaningful measures of progress, and target setting. This is the key to gathering meaningful performance information, which goes to the heart of performance management. The use of performance information by managers and political leaders happened more rapidly in the 1990s at the local level. But as federal agencies began to define outcome-focused goals for their programs, the dialogue between the federal government and states and localities changed with regard to how federal grants should focus more on societal outcomes. A new data-driven model for managing performance and accountability, ultimately dubbed Performance Stat, was created in the early 1990s in New York City, rapidly spreading to other cities, and was adopted by various state governments and federal agencies over the next decade. Professor Bob Bain defines what exactly is Performance Stat. Well, it's a very complicated thing, so let me give you some specific components of it. Um, First of all, It's not just performance measurement either. It's a leadership strategy designed to achieve specific public purposes by producing specific results. That is, there's some defined results that we're trying to produce. Why? Because we have a purpose in mind. Then there's the question of, well, what do we do to make that happen? Well, one thing that we do is we have a series of regular integrated meetings in which we discuss what's going well, what's not, based on current data, try to identify specific problems, try to figure out what's causing those problems, and then try to develop some strategies that we can experiment with that might help us solve that particular uh, problem. Those meetings include follow-up from previous discussions. They include feedback from 
particular progress that we've made, and they always are trying to figure out, well, what's the next performance deficit we have to fix? What is the target we should have for that one? Bain explains what prompted the move in this direction and how it helps public agencies actually produce results. Well, it starts in New York City Police Department in uh, January of 1994. Uh, Rudy Giuliani has been elected mayor in November of 1993. Uh, He campaigned on the uh, key platform of reducing crime in New York City. He hires uh, Bill Bratton to be his police commissioner. Bratton comes in, uh, hooks up with his old buddy uh, from before, Jack Maple, And they create this thing that they call ComStat, in which it pays attention to crime and tries to reduce crime in particular areas. They have a series of meetings with the uh, precinct commanders and the borough commanders in the city, trying to identify problems, trying to identify strategies that will reduce crime of particular types in particular areas. Then other police departments copied the same strategy, used it to reduce crime. And then other agencies in New York City that had nothing to do with crime or policing began to think about it as well. The Human Resources Administration created JobStat for its welfare recipients. The Administration uh, for Children's Services created ChildStat, in which they focused on reducing the problems of child abuse. So a number of New York City agencies took it on. Then it spread across the country. Other agencies did it. The next step was to the jurisdiction-wide level where Baltimore became the first city or any jurisdiction to say, we're going to apply this strategy to every agency. And that was called CityStat. They chose to call it CityStat. And I guess the last iteration is at the federal level, where even before the GPRA Modernization Act required agencies to run quarterly performance reviews, HUD had created HUDSTAT, FEMA had created FEMASTAT, and FDA had created FDA track. all uses of the same basic strategy. Switching gears a bit, but providing more context, Bob Bain, author of The Performance Stat Potential, a leadership strategy for producing results, explains how performance measurement differs from performance management. People talk about, well, we'll do performance measurement, we'll get the measures, and then wonderful things will happen. And, you know, I don't see that because the measures just sort of sit there until somebody's responsible for making a change in some particular measure, whether it's truancy or whether it's crime or whether it's child protection or whether it's filling the potholes. Uh, Somebody's got to be responsible for getting it done. That's, again, why I use the phrase performance leadership, because I found too many people use the phrase performance management. But if you look at what they're really talking about, they're only talking about the measurement. They haven't figured out how to manage this. Bain points out the search for data is driven by two needs. Obviously, one reason for getting data is to analyze what our current level of performance is answer the question, how well are we doing? Another reason, however, that is often neglected is to use the data to motivate people to improve performance. Obviously, an organization that has multiple subunits 
each unit doing the same thing, whether it's a police department or a series of welfare departments or whatever, one of the motivational uses of the data is to compare different organizations. Your organization's doing better than mine. Why is that? Now, I will, of course, try to explain that my organization is different. That's the standard all-purpose bureaucratic excuse. You don't understand. We're different. But if the organization is large, if it's like New York City, which um, 20 years ago had 76 precincts, today it has 77, you have 76 precincts, There's I can't get away with that excuse because there's another precinct commander that's got the same type of problem that I have. And if she or he is doing better than me, I can't get away with the excuse. So the analytical part is trying to learn and make the improved decisions, the motivational part, which people tend to forget about. I mean, I've really been struck of the discussion of performance measurement almost always ignores the question of motivation and instead focuses on how do we make better decisions. Mm -hmm. But if we make better decisions and nobody does anything about it, it's not very, very helpful. Professor Bob Bain tells us more about the evolution of performance stat from version, say, 1.0 to its current iteration. Well, the first thing that people try to do is, okay, let's do what we're supposed to be doing right. Let's pick up the garbage right. Let's arrest the bad guys right. Whatever it is, we aren't doing it right. The version 2 is more about how we can improve those formal processes. How could we do it differently? How could we pick up the trash differently? Let's not just focus on running the routes properly, which we weren't doing before, maybe. And now let's figure out how we redesign the routes. And, you know, some people, operations research ways of doing that, but also frontline workers know something about that as well. Performance Stat 3.0 is more about how can we think differently about what results we're trying to produce and how we're trying to produce them. So this is much more long-term. It's much more getting into analyzing purpose, where purpose is more than just picking up the garbage. Purpose is more about how does that relate to having a community that people want to live in? What is it about picking up the garbage right that helps people want to be part of our community? And I think you can't do that third stage until you've gone through one, and I don't think you can do two until you've gone through one either. you got to go, one, let's just get what we're supposed to be doing right. Two, let's redesign what we're supposed to be doing so it makes more sense. And then three, let's think about how we achieve our purpose a little better and maybe even change our purpose or maybe bring more than one line unit together to help us achieve our purpose. However, Bain acknowledges this approach did not always carry over intact from one elected official to another. Many of these programs disappeared when the top political leaders left. Others were sustained but often evolved into new directions. For example, Washington State's GMAP became Results Washington with a new focus. This probably could have been anticipated, notes Bain, who says performance stat is not a system or a model. It's a leadership strategy. First of all, I want to emphasize it's not 
a system. It's not a model. It's a leadership strategy. It's a leadership strategy designed to achieve specific public purposes by producing specific results. That is, there's some defined results that we're trying to produce. Why? Because we have a purpose in mind. Then there's the question of, well, what do we do to make that happen? To achieve the strategy's potential to produce real results requires active leadership. Moreover, the leadership team must adapt the strategy to fit its specific public purposes. Thus, it should not be expected that the management style of one political leader can readily transition to the next political leader. Next up, creating a demand for performance information when this special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join us each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual. The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, a conversation on performance management in government. Performance management routines that created a supply of information in the 1990s and early 2000s did not necessarily lead to an expected demand for that information by managers and decision makers. Four things expanded the use of performance information in government agencies, and they were the need for greater accountability, improving organizational performance, making budget decisions that are right and smart, and informing employee pay decisions. Shelley Metzenbaum, author of the IBM Center Report, Performance Accountability, the Five Building Blocks and Six Essential Practices, explored what it is to hold someone accountable without creating a culture based on worry and primarily avoiding punishment. Typically, if a measurement system focuses on accountability, managers are incentivized to set lower performance targets for their organization and themselves. But Metzenbaum found if a measurement system focuses on performance improvement, then managers tend to be more comfortable with higher performance targets. Ideally, leaders want both. But there are trade-offs. Other approaches were employed in attempts to use information to improve organizational performance. These approaches met with varying degrees of success. For example, a private sector approach called Balanced Scorecard was adopted by several federal agencies. A second approach was the expanded use of the performance stat model at the federal level. In the IBM Center report, a guide to data-driven performance reviews by Elizabeth Davies and Harry Hatchery, they described the use of data-driven performance reviews pioneered by several federal agencies. Based on their observations, Davies and Hatchery developed a how-to guide for implementing data-driven reviews in other agencies. This approach was ultimately endorsed by OMB 
and used by agencies to conduct effective data-driven forums. The most notable of these, which successfully navigated the transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, are the annual agency reviews. Another aspect that increased the demand for performance information was the availability of new techniques to collect and use data. Sukumar Ganapati, author of the IBM Center Report, Using Geographic Information Systems to Increase Citizen Engagement, described the rapid spread of map data, such as the location of Recovery Act projects around the country, so that citizens could see where these funds were being spent and by whom. Geographic Information Systems, which is uh, what GIS stands for, these are a whole set of uh, technology tools that show the spatial information visually and we can use it also to conduct spatial analysis. This is useful because uh, when we show things on map, they are understandable to people very easily. Uh, as you know, pictures speak a thousand words. So in very simple terms, it's something which analyzes spatial information. Ganapati and his other IBM Center report Use of dashboards in government described the expanded use of dashboards for internal agency and public use, such as the recovery.org and performance.org websites. Dashboards can put easily digestible information in place for a busy user. Another challenge to performance analysts is how to measure unobserved events. For example, how can we know if a law enforcement strategy actually works to prevent or deter crime? To assess this requires an ability to measure events that cannot be observed, such as tax cheating, drug smuggling, or illegal immigration. John Whitley dedicates his IBM Center report, Five Methods for Measuring Unobserved Events, a case study of the federal law enforcement to exploring this topic. So we're really talking about things uh, where you know what's going on, but unobserved to the, from the perspective of the law enforcement organization, from the government entity and tasked with, with dealing with the challenge. In the report, I make uh, bring out to, to some extent the difference between infrequent events. I also have a background in the Department of Defense where I've worked for a number of years. And there, the big challenge was uh, the fact that, the good fact that wars don't happen very often. So you're investing in ground force capability you're ingressed investing in air forces and float forces and ships, and you're trying to design them and buy the optimal mix of those things to affect uh, the ability of the Department of Defense to prosecute the nation's wars. Well, fortunately, those wars don't come around very often. And so a lot of that is you're dealing with, well, if the war occurs, how will it occur? And will these be will this be the best mix of capabilities or would some other mix be better? That problem is at DHS as well. FEMA is responsible for preparing for a catastrophic event, a nuclear device, an improvised nuclear device going off in the U.S. city. Thank goodness that's never happened. So how do you invest in capabilities and how do you decide, is this the right set of capabilities or is this the right set of capabilities uh, to deal with that problem if and when it occurs? So that's the challenge of infrequent events. And it creates a certain set of measurement challenges uh, for the performance management community. Can't observe uh, what those values are at the government level, at the law enforcement official level. So this is about how to go out and measure things that are going on out there in the field uh, that you don't observe and how do you create those estimates so that you can then inform your management decision-making. In his IBM Center report, John Whitley describes five data estimation methods being pioneered in different federal agencies. Whitley acknowledges there is no simple formula. Each management challenge is different, 
and the best methods for capturing performance measurement vary with the circumstances of the individual challenge. There is no cookie-cutter formula to go in and say, uh, I work in mission space X, so technique Y is the right one for me. But what you can say is, first, you have to start with what is your performance management framework? You have to start with a logic model and say, what is my mission space? How, how is my mission space defined? So you have to know what you're trying to measure. And, and so a lot of the challenges we face are, if you don't do that homework first, then it turns into an exercise of what can I measure? And then you, you realize years later, after you spent a lot of money and made a lot of bad decisions, that you were going in the wrong direction. So you have to start with the logic model and the analysis. What is my mission? What are the mission outcomes I'm trying to affect? And that's what you should be at least trying. Uh, sometimes you won't succeed, but at least trying to measure. So another point to make is think through the problem and think through who's got an incentive. Does, is there somebody out there with an incentive, with the data and an incentive to be measuring the problem already? Whitley concluded that when decision makers systematically analyze their existing data, it is possible to bring about radical reforms and achieve impressive improvements in performance. He also admits there are some serious challenges to getting there. I word this delicately. I mean, you know, our, our law enforcement officials out there and, and, you know, those of you who have worked with them, you know, know that these are incredibly dedicated public servants. But they're generally folks who are very focused on doing their job today, this minute. What's my lead? Where could it take me? What arrests could I make? How can I get the bad guy put away? The notion that some of your resources should not be devoted to that, that some of your resources should be withheld, and devoted to getting a better handle on what's going on in the environment in which you're operating in and to, to measure it, to develop performance measures, and then to use these performance measures to inform investment decisions, bringing new officers on board in the future, bringing new technologies on board in the future, doing whatever it is, or rearranging from this investigative portfolio to that investigative portfolio, things that will happen next year or the year after, multi-years from now. Uh, that tends to be a little foreign uh, to the folks. What I really talk about in the report is you really need to be upfront with the leadership about uh, what the strengths and weaknesses of the data uh, that you're bringing forward are. Uh, decisions are complicated to make, are hard to make. The, the reason the secretary and deputy secretary get paid a lot of money uh, is because they're doing a really hard job. The data is never going to be sufficiently complete. The analysis is never going to be sufficiently comprehensive and of sufficient quality that it's the only thing that helps determine the decision. There's other factors, uh, professional judgment of the operators, the political environment in which you're working, the broader strategic agenda of the administration, all those things are going to be part of the decision and they all should be part of the decision. The data should be an important part, but it won't be the only part. And so the performance management office, they need to be aggressive and they need to get the data collected, get the data, get the analysis done and get the data in front of the decision maker. But they also need to be constrained in terms of what they're saying it can do. Another example of using performance information in a more sophisticated manner can be seen in the 2013 report by Jennifer Bachner, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics, which explores the use of data and analytics in predicting crimes in city neighborhoods and preventing them from occurring. Sure. Well, the term intelligence-led policing usually refers to the use of quantitative evidence to guide decision-making. So New York City was the first department to implement CompStat, which you may have heard of. Mm -hmm. And this is really a philosophy more than anything else. So under CompStat, a police department collects crime data and evaluates its performance based on that data. So CompStat is really a means of holding officers and departments accountable. 
Predictive policing, on the other hand, is entirely focused on the proactive side of the equation. So under CompStat, data is gathered to assess the past, whereas under predictive policing, data is gathered to predict the future. It's, it's to prevent crime from happening in the first place. But there's still a role for CompStat in determining which predictive policing strategies are ultimately effective. So CompStat serves an evaluative role. Bachner describes how new policing approaches in selected communities are using big data techniques to predict criminal behavior. These same tools apply in other policy areas, such as predicting and preventing homelessness, reducing tax fraud, and mitigating communities' vulnerability to natural disasters. Yeah, let me break this down. Um, So all events have systematic and non-systematic components. So the systematic component includes things that are predictable, whereas the non-systematic component includes things that are non-predictable. Let me give you an example. So suppose I'm trying to predict an individual's likelihood of purchasing a new car. The systematic component of that decision might include the number of years that person has owned his current car and the number of cars he has purchased in the past. These are variables that are consistent predictors of new car purchasing. On the other hand, this individual might decide not to purchase a car after all because he unexpectedly loses his job. This is a non-predictable turn of events that influences the purchasing decision. The exact same type of framework can be applied to criminal decision-making. Some crimes are highly predictable because they have a strong systematic component, Uh, The decision to commit a burglary, for example, is usually driven by the season, the time of day, the property value, and the presence of escape routes. These predictors are fixed, and they're known to police. Homicides, on the other hand, are are very difficult to predict because they are often driven by non-systematic factors, such as a flaring of passion. The key takeaway point here is that some crimes have strong systematic components and are therefore quite predictable— whereas others have strong non-systematic components, which makes them very difficult to predict. Predictive policing is likely to be most effective when it's used for crimes that have strong systematic components. Next up, we go international. How does New Zealand do performance management? And what can others learn when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, The Leaders Speak, returns? The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. This is The Center This Week, highlighting the latest trends and best practices for improving government effectiveness, brought to you by the IBM Center for the Business of Government. I'm Michael Keegan, Managing Editor of the Business of Government magazine. The Center This Week is our opportunity to inform and, most importantly, to invite you, our listeners, to use the IBM Center for the Business of Government as your resource 
a how-to resource for improving government effectiveness at the state, local, and federal level. In the 2000s, the use of collaborative networks expanded in government. This approach was used at all levels of government in an increasingly complex policy environment involving multi-sector partners. The growing pains of various networks helped identify common challenges that networks faced as they strive for long-term sustainability. Addressing these barriers systematically helped pave the path towards institutionalization of collaborative governance as a useful approach for public managers. And we see this in such policy domains as food safety and stewardship land management. Food safety responsibilities have historically been fragmented and decentralized among 16 federal agencies responsible for implementing 30 different laws and a myriad of state, local, and public sector entities. Monica Nagara, co-author with Noel Grease of the IBM Center report, Food Safety, Emerging Public-Private Approaches, explains and describes the complicated landscape of food safety. to estimate the true extent of food safe disease, but it can be safely be said that foodborne disease occurs more frequently than it is reported and it incurs more costs than it, there are estimates for. In the last 10 years, we have had more than 20 major food contamination events that made thousands of people severely ill with very high health and economic costs. These events are distributed across many types of food products, but contaminations of meat, poultry, and fresh produce are the most prominent. We see that there are increasing opportunities for food contamination and that the costs for food contamination events are also increasing. And we think that one of the roots of this problem is the fragmentation of the U.S. food safety system, as well as the lack of authority of our regulatory agencies to mandate recalls, the inadequacy or inexistence of traceability systems and the food supply chain. Noel Grease elaborates on how the food safety system works. So uh, in terms of the complicated structure, um, there are 15 different agencies and more than 30 different laws that govern food safety at the federal level. And right now, if you sort of try and look at the the landscape of the regulatory bodies, the major tasks are divided between the FDA and the USDA. Uh, The FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, oversees about 80% of our food supply, including uh, imported foods, foods that come into our country across borders. Uh, And the USDA, or really it's FSIS, or Food Safety and Inspection Service, uh, is responsible for the remaining 20%, and and that includes meat, uh, poultry, and and processed uh, egg products. There are a number of other agencies. Um, The CDC, for example, I think Monica mentioned them earlier, has responsibility for surveillance and and epidemiological activities to confirm and monitor and manage um, foodborne disease outbreaks. You know, the EPA, uh, Department of Homeland Security, because, remember, food safety also has a homeland security and terrorism aspect to it uh, as well. They're also involved in food safety. So we have a a very complicated structure uh, at the federal level. But in all honesty, the bulk of the food safety work really happens at the local and the state levels. We have thousands of local health departments um, and uh, various state departments of of public health and agriculture all engaged in uh, data gathering and analysis, inspections of of various um, stakeholders and suppliers uh, along the food supply chain. The food safety policy area may be ripe for greater collaboration, but absent a willingness by key stakeholders, little progress has been made. 
Noel Grease and Monica Nagara, authors of the IBM Center Report on the importance of collaboration in ensuring food safety, offer some insights. I think the public-private aspect of food safety is emerging. I think it's being recognized that we can't necessarily rely just on the public sector, on the FDA and the USDA, to to help keep our food safe. We've been talking about a new stakeholder model that includes not just the public sector agencies, but also the private sector and also the consumer, who all have roles to play in keeping our, our food uh, supply safe. Private sector uh, on its own uh, is also engaging in um, industry-wide efforts to alert suppliers and customers up and down the supply chain if, if problems are emerging. And it's in their interest that, you know, private sector companies uh, want to maintain the, their brand. They want to maintain the safety of their products. So it's in their interest as well. These sort of collaborative approaches are really the way to go in the future, and the laws that are coming down uh, also reflect this. However, absent congressional support and a consensus for action by key stakeholders, little progress has been made, according to a 2017 report by GAO, in part because the U.S. food safety system never envisioned the regulation or coordination of global production and supply chains. In June 2018, the Trump administration's government reorganization plan included a proposal to create a single food safety agency. As collaborative networks evolved in different policy domains, supporting technologies and network models evolved as well. One such example is the use of stewardship contracting as a tool to support frontline collaboration, specifically in ecosystem management of forestlands and watersheds. Cassandra Mosley, author of the IBM Center Report, Strategies for Supporting Frontline Collaborations, Lessons from Stewardship Contracting, explains. So stewardship contracting is a set of contracting authorities that the Forest Service and BLM were given initially through a pilot project in the late 1990s and now through a a 10-year authority that allow them to combine the best of service contracting or traditional federal procurement authorities and timber sale contracting, which is the sale of timber. By bringing the sort of the best of both worlds together, that allows them to do on-the-ground restoration work in ways that are just not possible when they only can, you have to use one kind of set of contracting authorities to sell timber and another set of contracting authorities to purchase services. But when you're really working to restore uh, ecosystems um, on public lands, you really need to have a whole bag of tools together in one contract. It reduces the impact on the land. It creates more local economic benefit. It, it, and it creates a lot of administrative efficiencies. So stewardship contracting has been uh, something that emerged in, as an idea in Montana and some other parts of the West and then has burgeoned over the last decade or so across the National Forest System and the Bureau of Land Management. How is stewardship contracting a tool for cultivating frontline collaboration? I think that one of the um, things that uh, is critical to you know for for senior executives perhaps to think through is they want to figuring out how to support their collaboration and their, their their frontline staff in collaboration. It requires really changing thinking and changing structures and changing authorities. And so what I realized as I was looking at these examples of of stewardship contracting was that, and the whole process that the agencies have gone through to support it, that one of the key pieces of helping local-level collaboration succeed is helping the frontline staff by creating the time and the space for them to really develop these collaboratives. Another area is to really focus on what are the rules that need to be changed to encourage collaboration, 
Oftentimes, funding, this may be really focusing on prioritizing funding for actions that have been collaboratively agreed to. If a collaboration comes together, they spend two years reaching agreement, and then there's no money to implement the agreement. That burns a lot of bridges pretty quickly, and the, the collaboration will dissolve. Another critical piece of that is really to think about the importance of local discretion. If there's nothing real, no real decisions to be made at the front line, why would citizens engage in the collaborative process if there's nothing to be worked through? Um, so it's critical that uh, you know people be able to uh, make decisions at the at the field level. I think another strategy is to provide real incentives for collaboration, whether that's in um, through formal guidance and requirements that that people collaborate or um, aligning organizational and personal performance measures so that people are held accountable for collaborating. In both those cases, you can think about encouraging the people who, making it easier for the people who want to collaborate and um, creating incentives for the people who are more hesitant. And then finally, the fourth strategy I talk about in the report is to really build the capacity of both the agency and non their non-governmental partners, partners to engage in collaboration. And one of the things that's very apparent in stewardship contracting is the importance of well-trained, well-qualified procurement people and staff. But why is collaboration in this context so hard? Um, I think, well, I, mean, I think there's a lot of diverse reasons why collaboration is hard sometimes. Some of the factors I focus on in this report are really the, the conflicts between the old institutions that are for hierarchical and the newer desires to collaborate. I think that can be a real area of focus for senior executives. I think at the ground level, at the frontline level, you can both have community reluctance to collaborate sometimes, although I think that's becoming more and more rare, or you can have conflict that's so intense that every time people try to get a group together, it's sabotaged or something like that. You can also see um, in, you know, in a man land management agency or in other, other many agencies, people didn't get into the business of being foresters or any number of other federal agencies because they wanted to work with people, they wanted to work with trees, and now they're being asked to work with people. I think, and I and I do think that the, the training component and helping the frontline staff know understand how to collaborate and what collaboration is is a key piece. But but also, I think there are these larger structural issues that make it can make it very difficult, whether it's political pressures or lack of authority or just you know it's habit, and so the habit is habits are hard to break when they're in, in large bureaucracies. These and other examples of collaborative networks show that, as governance strategies, they were beneficial and made a difference in their respective policy areas, and that the various supporting tools have lowered barriers to using the networked approach. However, in most cases, these networks could not sustain themselves over the long run because of difficulties with working in a collaborative environment, especially in the context of the traditional and self-sustaining hierarchical model. Currently, efforts are undertaken to address some of the more common challenges to creating and sustaining collaborative-based initiatives. More information on this and other centered resources is available at businessofgovernment.org. There you will find how the business of government is not business as usual. For the IBM Center for the Business of Government, I'm Michael Keegan, and this has been the Center This Week. Each week on the Business of Government Hour, government executives and thought leaders join host Michael Keegan for an informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. These individuals are truly changing the way government does business. So join us each week on the Business of Government Hour and find out how the business of government isn't business as usual.
The Business of Government Hour, every Monday at 11 a.m. on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, a conversation on performance management in government. Many important social problems cross agency boundaries, and working effectively to solve these problems is not easy. In 2012, the New Zealand government tried something new and different. The New Zealand government created a system of interagency performance targets. Government leaders were frustrated by cross-agency social problems that persisted, and they wanted to push public servants to purposefully and creatively overcome the challenges to collaboration. Almost 30 years of trial and error, New Zealand's results program has been a remarkable success, but this success did not come easy. Here's an excerpt of my earlier interview with Professor Rodney Scott, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Interagency Performance Targets, a case study of New Zealand's results program. Well, that's interesting. It's a great context for giving us an overview of the evolution of public management reforms in New Zealand. Could you give us that? Sure. So um, prior to 1989, New Zealand had a inputs-based public management system. So public managers were responsible for describing how they were deploying people and money. The rules were set centrally right down to procurement of stationary kind of rules and managers have very little discretion in how they operated. This wasn't very efficient, and there was a uh, financial, a fiscal crisis in the late 80s that caused New Zealand to, to really need to think about how they could deliver their public services more efficiently. And they introduced a number of reforms that over time have become known as, as new public management. At the time, they, that wasn't a phrase that existed. And the ma- main change was a division of government into smaller, largely single-purpose agencies and the provision of great deal of discretion and delegated authority to the leaders of those departments to really manage them uh, as they saw fit, to borrow practices from the private sector and not to rely on any central or bureaucratic rules. They had a close relationship with a responsible minister and that vertical relationship allowed the government to be very responsive um, to uh, changing political priorities, but it also had some challenges that it introduced. So those reforms were very successful in solving the problems of the day and creating a more efficient government. They also created fragmentation in its place. So now it's much more difficult for agencies to work on problems that cross the responsibilities of multiple agencies. In the 30 years since then, most of the reforms have been trying to respond to the challenges that were created by the reforms of the later 80s. <laughs> so having uh, created a more efficient system, we've spent the last 30 years trying to deal with fragmentation and create a more effective system. The most recent of those reforms was um, came on the back of the global financial crisis. So like most countries, New Zealand had to come up with a way to save some money. Um, there were declining revenues because of declining economic activity. And... Uh, 
Most countries responded by cutting the services that they provided. And the New Zealand government didn't want to do that. They wanted to come up with a way to make public services more effective so that there was less demand for continued uh, welfare assistance and things. For, if some of these problems could be solved, then they wouldn't be so expensive. So they looked at some of the most persistent problems that have bedeviled governments over many years despite great attempts at solving them and discovered that what they had in common was that they, they spanned the responsibilities of multiple agencies. So in 2012, they launched um, a program called the Better Public Services Results Program, which is um, the subject of the report. And uh, that was about setting uh, interagency targets uh, to achieve um, uh, impacts or, or intermediate outcomes and to improve those 10 uh, problems that they saw as the most important. Uh, the, the reforms uh, of, of 2012 introduced this focus on intermediate outcomes because intermediate outcomes are, are closer to the attribution and to the activity of public servants. Um, while still having some intrinsic value. In contrast to, say, end outcomes, which tend to have um, a much longer delay between an action and its observed effect. Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the things that, that came out of the new public management reforms was this focus on outputs. Um, how has that focus on outputs resulted in agencies becoming more efficient and effective? And are there any drawbacks with that focus? Sure. So... Um, since those reforms in the late 80s, there has been this, this focus on, on outputs and um, on uh, delivering them as cost-effectively as possible. Um, there are some measures of service quality in the system, but there's less of a focus on directly measuring the impacts of those services. Um, this means that you can get very good at delivering things that might themselves be of questionable value. Um, not in all cases, but there are certainly some instances where... Um, public service could have identified uh, different ways of doing things rather than continuing to get better at doing things the way they had been doing them. Uh, the, the reforms uh, of, of 2012 introduced this focus on intermediate outcomes because intermediate outcomes are, are closer to the attribution and to the activity of public servants um, while still having some intrinsic value. In contrast to, say, end outcomes, which tend to have um, a much longer delay between an action and its observed effect. Mm -hmm. So given your uh, evaluation and research for your report for the IBM Center uh, around New Zealand's results program, why is it so important to align results, targets, and measures? Sure. So um, when New Zealand distinguishes between these three things, they, they do it for a reason. Um, but by having three different uh, things, they're often conflated in other countries, you also have the opportunity that they don't align. The reason that they're separated is um, you want a result to be in the simplest language you can that speaks to people's motivations and passions. It should be about changing people's lives. A target needs to be the simplest number that you can come up with. So... Um, in our case, there are often count measures. So how many people have this? How many people have this? Um, they're not subjective. They're not um, really that open to interpretation. They stand out on their own and they provide the public with trust. Mm -hmm. The public goes, okay, you're not trying to hide something from me. You're telling me straight up how many kids are graduating high school and is that more or less than it was before? And then the measure is where you get technical. 
So if I use the example in result three, um, we don't know the incidence of rheumatic fever. The goal is to reduce rheumatic fever by two thirds. We don't know how many people actually have rheumatic fever. We know how many people present to hospital with rheumatic fever, and we think that's a pretty good measure. But some people have to go to hospital multiple times. So uh, we use the measure of the first incidence hospitalization for an individual within a 12-month period. Um, and that was developed with the data analysts and the scientists to come up with a technical measure that is the best way of, of uh, assessing progress. So that's the reason we split them out, because they serve different purposes. But they um, ideally should all measure the same thing. They should uh, be aligned so that they provide that focus and that sense of purpose for the public servants. And when they don't, you get um, you get confusion between public servants as, as to what they're actually trying to work to achieve. Mm-hmm. And, and it's true that targets are useful management tools. Um, they clarify purpose and ambition. Um, how important is it to publicly commit to your uh, performance management targets? Um, I think it's been hugely important uh, to the success of this program. Um, despite the fact it was very scary for the government. Mm-hmm. And uh, this has been something that public servants have been advocating for for a long time and governments have been very reluctant to do because um, uh, when you go out and tell the public that you're going to achieve a number by a date, then you will be held, um, you'll be punished if you don't achieve that number. Um, New Zealand, like many countries, um, likes to start new things. Mm-hmm. I've uh, been speaking to to public servants around uh, the US, and it seems to be something that happens here as well. Uh, in in this case, uh, every few years, the New Zealand government will um, launch a new flagship program, and public servants aren't really sure whether that will stick around. They're not sure if they'll actually have to deliver on the things that they've been asked to do. Uh, in 2012, the New Zealand government uh, went out publicly and said, this is what we achieve over five years. These are the things that we think are important. This is how we'll report it and when we'll report it. We'll tell you every six months, we'll show you these line graphs. Um, there's going to be very difficult for us to, to walk away from those. So they were intentionally tying their own hands, mm-hmm. um, which is something very uh, brave and, and risky for ministers to do. Um, but they did it because uh, it was a signal to public servants Public servants knew, well, ministers have tied their hands. They can't walk away from this, so we can't walk away from it either. We have to go all in on this because at the end of the five-year period, we're going to be held responsible for whether or not we've achieved these things. We know this target program is going to last for five years. Um, and that's been quite different to um, other reforms that have been launched with great fanfare but have sort of gradually faded over time. Mm-hmm. So I'd like to get your insights on designing accountability. New Zealand's results um, program uh, combines, as you pointed out, a top-down governance uh, with a uniquely bottom-up innovation approach. Um, what did New Zealand learn by trial and error, say over three phases, and how did New Zealand hold leaders collectively responsible? So uh, New Zealand's been accused of being obsessed with accountability. We uh, have historically worked on the principle of a single throat to choke, So everything must come down to one person in the end. There must be one person who's responsible. And that gets in the way of collaboration. So holding individuals accountable for collaboration uh, has always been a fraught endeavour. New Zealand um, first tried uh, appointing one chief executive as the nominal leader, a first amongst equals. Mm -hmm. And they were responsible for influencing their other chief executives to cooperate with them to achieve the target. 
this focus on having one person ultimately responsible uh, made other contributing agencies feel less responsible. They felt like it was something that was optional for them. They didn't have skin in the game. It wasn't their reputation that was on the line. So the second thing that the State Services Commission tried, um, they switched to focusing on behaviours. Which agencies look like they're contributing to collaboration? Which ones look like they're doing their share? Which ones are being cooperative? Which ones are putting aside some of their own priorities to work for the collective good? Um, And that's great in theory, um, and it had some uh, successes in practice. But collaboration is something of a black box. Uh, it's very difficult from the outside to really understand what's going on, um, what are surface behaviours versus what is actually making a difference. So the current system, which was adopted in 2014, was to hold groups of chief executives blindly, collectively responsible for the targets. Uh, so in the case of reducing crime, the chief executive of the Ministry of Justice, the New Zealand Police and the Department of Corrections are all equally responsible for reducing crime and criminal reoffending. They can't say that they were successful but the others failed. Um, similarly, they can't be told that they failed when the overall program was a success. Now, this isn't fair. Um, fairness isn't, <laughs> isn't what we're going for with this particular approach. It means that you might have a free rider. Um, you might have somebody who doesn't contribute but because of the great efforts of everybody else, they're still rewarded. You might have somebody who's punished because despite the fact the fact that they did everything they could do, the other agencies just didn't pull their weight. But if we ignore fairness for a moment, it promotes the kind of behaviours that we were looking for. Um, it created a kind of normative effect where um, there was peer pressure. Chief executives would pressure their other agencies to do their bit. Um, and there was also a bit of a whatever-it-takes mentality too, Uh, I don't care what this looks like because I'm not being judged on what it looks like. I'm going to make it succeed somehow. Um, So you had a a, a much more focus on the um, output that was achieved as opposed to making it look like you were doing the right things. So that's where we are now. It's not a perfect system, but we think it's the best of the three bad systems that we've we've tried. It's the one that seems to result in the best behaviors. That was an excerpt from my earlier interview with Professor Rodney Scott, co-author of the IBM Center Report, Interagency Performance Targets, a case study of New Zealand's results program. As we close this edition of the Business of Government Hour, it is important to note that government has made substantial progress over the past 20 years in developing a results-oriented performance management framework. Nevertheless, because of the statutory framework and a bipartisan commitment by top government executives, the performance movement seems assured of a place at the table. Yet still more needs to be done before performance becomes embedded as part of government's culture. Thanks for joining me on this special edition of the Business of Government Hour, Leaders Speak, on performance management in government. Be sure to join me next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government and its effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan. Thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.